0: Welcome to episode 93. Today, Dr. Maria Choi-Pena joins us to talk about investing in immigrant mothers raising children with disabilities. Welcome to the Teaching Multilingual Learners podcast. This podcast celebrates teachers who answer the calling to serve multilingual students and their families. Your beautiful smile, your beautiful When you hear the term summer slump what do you think about do you agree with this concept that implicitly discounts the rich learning done at home or do we see all the engaging opportunities that children have with their families in the summer that's the purpose of this episode to see immigrant families from assets-based perspective and seeing specifically how latinx mothers are investing in their children who are dual identified Dr. Maria Choi-Pena, author of Mothering Labeled Children, will bring to life the lives of Latin ex-mothers and how they're investing in their children, and by doing so, dismantle the deficit narrative around the way they mother. Now, on to today's podcast. Welcome back Dr. Maria Choi-Pena it is so great to have you we're recording this just right after Mother's Day and so happy belated Mother's Day and uh, speaking on that topic you're writing about the Latinx experience and so we would love for you to talk uh, about mothering labeled children but before we get there I uh, your resume and your background is so extensive Of all the things that you have done, um, what are you most proud of
1: professionally? Wow. Um, That you're just coming out of the gate with these great questions, hard-hitting questions. Um, First, I just want to say thank you so much for having me again. Um, It's so lovely to be in conversation with you and with your audience. Um, I'm I'm just so appreciative of how positive my work has been received in this space. what am I most proudest of? Um, I'm I'm really proud of this book, um, and I'm really proud of this book, not of the writing of it, um, but of the journey to produce it. Um, I'm really I I'm really proud of the relationships I've established with mothers, with families, with communities, with community organizations. Um, you know, for me, my work is really centered on relationships um, and recognizing in myself that I was keeping myself from engaging in relationships with the parents um in my classroom, and that in doing so I was limiting myself from having really expansive relationships with my students, um, with my colleagues, right? I think I think that recognition was something that was really important. And I think that that book really kind of brings that to the this book really brings that to the forefront. So what I'm yeah, I think that what I'm proudest of is the relationships I've built with families and, you know, it's things like I'm a godparent to multiple former students. I am, you know, still in contact with so many students. I've been out of the classroom now for Almost ten years, you know that's that's a long time, and yet I still have these really foundational relationships with families, um, and I continue to build them by, you know, through new research. And I think that my work, in a way, is possible because I've allowed myself to be a mother and a person at the forefront of a teacher, right? Or alongside being a teacher so that I have these other opportunities for connection. You're saying you're
0: bringing your whole self to the teaching experience. And because of that, you've really developed relationships with parents and students and community.
1: Yeah, and also I've grown, right? I've grown in tremendous ways because not only is it bringing my whole self, but allowing myself to feel like that's okay, um, allowing myself to recognize that who I am as a person is in the classroom regardless of whether I acknowledge it or not, and who my students are as you know sons and daughters, brothers and sisters, cousins, you know, grandchildren, they are in the classroom regardless of whether we want to acknowledge that or not.
0: Because kids bring their culture, which is their family, to the class. Right? so we can't separate that. Exactly. Yeah, just like we do.
1: Yeah, and you know, if I have a bad day it's with my spouse, it's gonna resonate somehow in my classroom. I can try to pretend like it's not, but it is gonna resonate. Um, Why is it that we allow that for adults, right? Or that grace for adults, but we don't so often allow it for children, right? And I think part of it is that we don't recognize the relationships that they have beyond the teacher-student relationship. Mm -hmm.
0: Can we start off with talking about every single book has it has a seed of a story. So where did the seed of the story come from, of this book come from?
1: Yeah, I mean, if you had asked me uh, five, six years ago what I would be writing a book about, number one, I'd be like, I don't imagine myself ever writing a book. Um, and number two, it would definitely not be about mothers. Um, you know, when I started the this project that eventually became the book, I was really interested in how my own higher educational training had failed to prepare me as a bilingual special education teacher. Um, I felt like I was a conglomerate of certifications, right? I was a I had a bilingual cert and I had a special education cert, and that was pretty much what made me a bilingual special education teacher. But the work in and of itself was so different. It was so hard. It wasn't just being a special education teacher in two languages, right? It's much more complicated than that. Um, And so that's really what I started exploring. Those were the questions that I started having. And at one point I returned to the school where I had been a teacher at, PS twenty four, which is uh, in Brooklyn, which is a wonderful little community, Um, and I interviewed a colleague for for a pilot study, and I said, you know, tell me about how you're feeling about reform. I was really looking at the time too at how special education reform had closed down a lot of bilingual special education settings, um, and why that was problematic. And in that interview, she said something very small. Right. that I think anyone could have just kind of not recognized as a seed. Um, And it was, you know, I just feel really bad for the parents and the moms, especially because they went from having a classroom where they could communicate with their teachers to now being with me. She was a monolingual English speaker. And, you know, we don't have that communication space. Right. And so she's like, so I feel really bad for them because they didn't really have a say in how these decisions were made. But they're impacted by them, and that really that sat and rattled around in my brain for a while. Um, and then at some moment, I was like, "I haven't seen my mother described or talked about in the literature that I've been reading. Yes. I haven't seen my aunts. I haven't seen the mothers of my former students. I." where are these people, right? Where are these women? Where are their stories? Where, why aren't we talking to them? Um, and that's really how this started. I, you know, and, and that it started with them me being interested in how do you feel about not being part of the conversation and the conversation turned out to be so much larger than that, right? It was less about them not being part of the conversation and more so about all of the things they were doing for their kids regardless, right? All of the ways that they had found to adapt, you know, and to still support their kids in ways that schools were failing to recognize and in some ways were actively pushing against and actively, you know, distorting. So tell us more about that
0: distorting part, like the the fact that they're not, the voices are not included of the people who look like your mother who are who come from your uh, your background
1: yeah so um i think about things like you know i i am a neurodiverse person um who as a child was diagnosed with obsessive compulsive disorder um with anxiety right um and those things were Difficult for me in social spaces, but they were amazing tools right Um, or beneficial disabilities, if you could call it that. um, In school, because it meant that I. Was isolated, but I really enjoyed, you know, taking notes and rewriting my notes over and over again. To the point where, you know, I was so focused on perfection that eventually you do memorize those things, right? You do kind of hold that information, and you are always going to turn in really good work. Um, and so I was always praised and celebrated as if that work was separate from the work that my mother was doing. And I think that that's one of the ways in which distortion happens. And particularly for kids who are classified either as English language learners or who are classified with having a disability or both, right? I think that we attribute success um, to the school almost exclusively when a child does well. And we discount all of the labor that families are investing, not only in helping children you know, shed those labels, but also actively working against those labels. So one of the things that the mothers um, in this book talked about is they didn't consider their children disabled, right? They considered their children to be representative of human diversity. That's a disability studies and education perspective, right? That is not a perspective that is necessarily adopted by most schools, right? Where in most schools we see a very medicalized model um, driving the approach to supports and services for children. So so that's what I mean in terms of distortion and discounting, right? That these women are seeing their children as whole while for the most part, and this is not to place blame. It's just to kind of highlight what the nature of the culture is, is that in schools we view children as the amalgamation of their labels. Right. I am the ESL teacher, so I'm here to support the English language learning needs. I am the special ed teacher, so I'm here to support the disability related needs. But this child is not, you know, in parts. This is a whole person. And I felt like one of the places that I could go, one of the surest places that I could go where I could see this child being seen as whole was in the home. So tell us about your research with that. Did you go to their homes? Yeah. So as part of the this work, um, I interviewed 10 mothers um, that are showcased in this book. Uh, three of them are really, really, I kind of zoom in on three of their experiences. Um, and for those three mothers who ended up kind of being these case study mothers, um, I spent a significant amount of time with them in their homes, uh, with and without their children. So I got to see them after school um, with their children. I also got to see them on a weekend with their children. Um, I got to see them on evenings with their children. Um, so it was, it was a lot of the around school time and just seeing what they were doing, right? And so I got to see things that we don't really report, right, in in studies or in data. So mothers who were actively teaching their kids Spanish, right, um, on white erase boards at home, right? Um, Mothers who were taking their kids to bookstores every weekend, you know, to get them the things that they needed in order to encourage the English literacy development, right, that teachers were reporting, but also getting them Spanish books in order for them to sustain their home language development, right? And for kids who were not in dual language or in bilingual settings, um, I saw moms who were, you know, using play, right, as a means of teaching and sharing and talking about feelings and modeling behavior. Um, so much of what we say is that children need, right? So much of what we believe is progressive education, inclusive education is being represented and modeled in the home. Now, granted, right, these women are in many situations where these mothers are working on -on one-on-one settings, right? There may be one child or two children, but I had mothers in the study who had five children and they were still finding ways to tend to them, right? Um, There were mothers in the study who had multiple children who were classified with disabilities and they were still finding ways to tend to them and to make space for them. Um, David Connor, uh, very famously in my mind, uh, has said, you know, about children with disabilities, they're included in their home, right? So it should be possible for us to include them at schools. And for me, it's like, these children are bilingual in their home. It should be possible for them to, or multilingual, right? For them to also be able to be linguistically nuanced at school. Um, So for me, it was really about what can we learn from the home? And I couldn't do that without going into the home. Right. I already love your book so
0: much because it's disrupting the narrative around um, multilingual families and what people often say. And sometimes we hear like, oh, they don't care. Oh, they're not preparing their kids. Oh, they're they're just absent. Mm -hmm. But you're really disrupting that narrative. Can you talk about that narrative?
1: Yeah. um, You know, what's interesting about that narrative is that it's very hard to disrupt when it when you can see that it's become internalized Um, because so one of the things that I would ask the moms um, who are featured in this book was around their level of participation in schools and you know and their level of participation in their child's education right so I would have both questions you know how active are you at school and how active do you think you are in your kids education and almost always their sense of involvement in their kids education correlated to their sense of being physically in the school. Mm -hmm. Right. And so we've kind of pigeonholed what it means to be Um, supportive of children's learning to only going to PTA meetings, only attending bake sales, only, you know, being a class parent, only doing these things, right, which are very Western and Eurocentric ways of considering education, right? Right. Uh, We know from previously established research that things like cultural competency, right, uh, good behavior, all of those things are important, um, morals, values, um, that is an important education component for families that they view as supporting school, right, as supporting the the work that's being done at school. Um, and yet, when I would ask them, they would say, "Oh, I'm not very involved," you know. I and you know they had reasons. They work a lot, right? A lot of school activities happen during the daytime um, when parents can't necessarily engage. Uh, there are linguistic barriers that are put in place for them. Um, so many mothers commented on showing up for legal meetings, like uh, you know individual education plan meetings, and not having an, a translator, right? Um, and you know, showing up to, they talked you know, really about all of the nonverbal and kind of discreet ways that we tell parents that they're actually not welcome. Right. And I think that that was really important because it allowed me to see that even when we say, please come to the school, please come to the meeting, how we treat parents once they're there right. speaks volumes, right? right. Um, and so it's pushing back on that narrative of parents not being involved. It's also pushing back, uh, not being involved on the na- uh, because they don't want to be, right? But it's also pushing back on the narrative of they don't, they're not involved because they're incompetent, right? Or because they're unable to be. Um, you know, I had mothers who said, you know, I just find that my time is better invested here right? And, you know, taking my kids to a tutor, right? So these are low income families. Um, These are undocumented women for the most part, right? So really, really women who have been pushed to the margins. Um, And yet they're finding all of these other ways to support their kids after being told that they're not welcome in schools. Um, And I think that that's really what we need to be paying attention to. It's what labor are they taking on and how can we offset that labor but also how can we maximize that so that it's beneficial to all right so that it's beneficial for the kid not just at home but also in school and so that the things that we do at school aren't just great at preparing kids to pass tests or you know exams or get diplomas but to also engage with their families in holistic and humanistic ways right um yeah so you were, your
0: book, I feel like it's helping us understand that we're, we're moving away from a narrow, narrow view of what parent participation looks like, particularly for multilinguals and multilinguals who are also dual identified. Right? Mm-hmm. We're now saying uh, the way people to participate, the way that schools want parents to participate might look different than the way that parents are already participating with their kids, like, taking an active role.
1: And, and now we're, go ahead. Right, and the ways that they value participation, right? Um, I think we need to recognize that homework, for example, and I talk a lot about homework in the book, um, is not the tool that we believe that it is.
0: Yes. Right?
1: <laughs> homework is not The supportive thing that we believe that it is homework is actually incredibly damaging in some of these families and situations um it creates toxicity within mother-child relationships um it creates you know feelings of embarrassment and a failure within parents um, when kids aren't able to you know do the things that schools say that they can do which we also have to recognize that when we uh, classify a child as having a disability, we do not prepare parents for that. There's no crash course on here is how you should support that child in school, right? Here is how you can help that child do homework at home. Um, you know, and that's something that we also need to really be thinking about. I actually recently got an article accepted to the Journal of Latinos and Education around, thank you, um, around uh, child protective services, right? And how child protective services are used within schools, right, and the experience of one Latina mother of a child with a disability, right? And that mother saying, they didn't give me the supports that I needed, right, to, to do homework with my child. I just got all of this work and I felt this pressure and that exploded into a really bad situation for the family. Right. So we need to recognize how we as schools, as educators, as teachers, as researchers are contributing to harm in ways when we think that we're still doing good. Right. So we all think homework is good. But is it always good? Right. And would we rather have kids reading at home with their parents? right building with their parents um you know it'd be great if you could do some cooking with your kids and let them measure things right it would be wonderful if you could put together a grocery list and your child would identify that at the market right like all of these other things that would be real right that would be real to children that would be real to families and that would help them rather than taxing them more um i think yeah, it's so so. It's really it's it's big, but it's re, but it's based on these finite and specific moments um, that create tension when we think we're doing good. And I think that that's really the theme of this book: is we need to be thinking about harm that's created when we think that we're doing good, when we're only considering the context of the school environment. Yes.
0: And there you're saying we now have to weave in the context of the home environment because mm-hmm. the kids go home and they have this context that builds them up and develops them and adds to them and enriches their experiences. And parents have experience, have a way of, of enriching their kids' lives, but and that's anchored through their culture.
1: hmm
0: and that maybe the culture of the family is very different than the culture of the school and so now we're we're your book is recommending to schools and teachers to say let's expand our vision our definition of what participation looks like and to include the way the parents value their participation with their kids
1: yeah and also when a family isn't participating let's understand that as A need for support rather than a need for judgment or criticism. Yes, and labels. And labels, yeah. Because you know, one other thing is, I still remember um, Patty, one of the moms in the book. I was interviewing her, and I was asking her about her participation in school, and she said, "You know, she had two children. Uh, Her her oldest son Dan was the one who was classified as uh, both." an English language learner and student with a disability Um, and she said he has a whole team of teachers looking out for him he has a whole team of people but my other daughter she doesn't have anybody but me right right understanding that is 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 critical, right? It's super important. Because if I understand that a parent can't come because they're dealing with another child and they feel that there's a team here that can advise them, I will understand my role as an educator differently. I will understand my interactions with that parent differently rather than just constructing in my mind, you know, this this mother as failure. And we need to recognize that our training in education has often contributed to that, even when it pushes against it. I mean, we hear conversations about the summer slide, right? The implications of that is children go home and when they're with their families, they lose everything that's good and valuable for school. That's what we're saying when we talk about the summer slide. Rather than thinking about all of the other ways that children are growing, developing, right? Practicing skills, just so much more growth is possible um, than, than we allow people to believe outside of school. Right, the school
0: is not the only context where kids can learn. Right, exactly.
1: It is a particular context in which kids can learn targeted skills, targeted strategies, right, and targeted things. And that's what it's become, right? Not that that's what it should be. Um, You know, I work with teacher educator, uh, with future um, teachers now in a teacher education program. And often they, when we have theory classes, the biggest critique is, but I didn't learn a skill or a strategy. Right, um, But skills and strategy are not the only things that we should be thinking about when working with English language learners or students with disabilities or any child. You, you talked
0: about uh, Patty. Would you talk more about her experience or the two other teach, uh, parents that
1: you uh, followed through? Yeah, so um, the three uh, core moms or who I call the testimonialistas are uh, Patty, Anna, and Maria. Um, and all three of them really are, I, I'm just, I'm so indebted to them for their generosity. Um, the, these women shared so much of themselves and and there were moments where I would ask them why, why me, <laughs> you know, why would they share these things? And on the one hand it was because They had so many things to say and nobody had asked them, right, before. But on the other hand, it was that I was a stranger and I was able to offer a space without judgment because they wouldn't necessarily have to see me again if they didn't want to. Um, You know, I've been really lucky that we've all developed relationships that we're all still connected. Um, I was pregnant during the time where I was doing this study and, you know, they keep up um, and they check in and they ask me how my daughter is doing and you know they'll text on her birthday and on Christmas and you know those things are really nice um, for me because it means that they didn't feel like I just entered the community and left them behind which I think is really important. Um, So Patty, um, so all three women are of Mexican origin um, and all three women were here as undocumented immigrants. Um, what was interesting is, again, all three women had come here with the intention to be here for short periods of time. You know, it's we hear the immigrant narrative often I'm going to go to America, work for a couple of years, save up money and return. Um, however, all three women had a child with a disability um, in that time frame. Right. And that diagnosis really then rooted them and made them feel like this was where they had to be. Right. They had to stay in the U.S. because now their children had needs that they felt they couldn't support, you know, in the small villages or towns where they were coming from um, in Mexico. Um, Anna was a woman with a disability herself. Uh, she had two children, uh, Maria Teresa um, and David. Um, you know she not only shared with me what was difficult about raising a child with disability in terms of the worries but she was one of the moms who was most vocal about her child being just like every other child um yes. wasn't any different um she did not talk about her daughter's disability classification you know beyond school because for her it didn't exist beyond school right um there was no need for people to know that because it would just lead to stigmatization. Right. So these women limited education levels. I, you know, I'm not remembering exactly, but I but remember that Anna didn't finish elementary school. Right. So and she was still able to recognize that. Right. we not still able. She was able to recognize her child's full humanity. Right. And her child's full inclusion. Um, Anna also Introduced, you know how issues of marital strife contribute to um, educational consequences, right? Um, she had at many times wanted to leave her partner, but because of her documentation status, uh, okay. she wasn't able to. Because of her disability status, her partner was able to, you know, weaponize that um, against her and threatening with threatening her with um, removal of her children. So she stays. You know, and she's still in that marriage now. Um, so we need to write, right? Like ma- mothers aren't just dealing with school things. They're also dealing with very real big topics. And she couldn't stand the idea of being away from her children. So even though it was, you know, harmful to her, she remains in the relationship. Um, you know, and then since then, since the book was written, you um, Her youngest child has now been classified as having a disability, right? So we're also seeing these patterns of classification within family structures, which are really important to think about. Um, And I cannot separate, you know, from my mind, that some of this is also based on how their mother is evaluated and classified and perceived, right? Um, As being unknowing, uneducated, as, you know, essentially an empty vessel needing to be filled. Um, so so Anna is just such an amazing kind of just, just amazing, powerful woman. Um, you know, and that we often judge women for staying, but we don't think about the complexities of their choices, right? Um, then Maria, uh, she was, she had two children, um, Justin and Jaden. And um, Justin was the oldest child. He had been diagnosed with autism. She, you know, talked really openly about how autism was really isolating for her. Um, The autism diagnosis, it was isolating for her because her partner didn't believe and still does not believe in the diagnosis, Um, and her family, you know, doesn't understand her child, so she doesn't go to social gatherings, she doesn't go to events, um, she doesn't do things, right, because she's chosen to put her child first. So she plays with them and she buys them supplies. And, you know, this was a woman who had not seen a medical doctor in the six years since she had had her last child, but was making sure that her son had art supplies every week. Right. So, like, so the sacrifices and that it, for them, they weren't sacrifices. They saw them as investments in their children, right? That their responsibility as mothers was to make sure that their kids were okay and cared for. And, you know, and at the same time that the disability diagnosis for them produced a lot of feelings of fear, um, of guilt, um, of shame and how they had to navigate through those feelings while also still being supportive and present for their kids. I mean. The, those are really powerful things to carry and and to think about and negotiate you're i'm feeling like you're saying
0: when we label kids we also label their families yes 100% and with that, that label becomes stigma and then there's all the stigma becomes with this like the, uh, is internalized oppression
1: Yeah. And I mean, I called it in the book, disability by proxy, right? Um, Because it's essentially what they're experiencing is ableism by proxy, right? They are experiencing social rejections of their children on the basis of class, ethnicity, race, um, ability, language, right? Um, And then they have to carry those, right? Because their children come from them, Right. And so that often means that they are also representative of the same racial, ethnic and class and language backgrounds that their children are coming from. Mm -hmm. Right. So rejections of their children are clearly going to come through as rejections of them. Yes. Right. So if someone tells you that your child is broken, just imagine what that feels like. Right. When you you're a first time mom and someone's told you that your child is broken, you're going to do everything that you can. Um, to fix that. And some of it may be blaming yourself and trying to change yourself.
0: What I hear you saying is like, there's multiple layers, like there, there is this labeling at school that already happens to their kids. And then at home, they say this child came from me. And I feel like the narrative around this kid is that this kid is broken. And Mm -hmm. because this kid came from me, I feel like I am broken. Right, And Mm -hmm. you share the experience of Maria where she doesn't go to family functions anymore because she is putting her kid first,
1: right? Yeah, and then you see other things like, you know, Patty talking about how she would show up at the school um, and ask why her son wasn't being supported appropriately, right, and her being ignored, right? So then when you get to the school setting and you're advocating in the ways that you're told to be advocating, but that doesn't result in anything, right? That further makes you feel, you know, like you are incapable. Uh, I, one of the words that was most often used to describe this was um, impotence, right? This sense of powerlessness, of complete powerlessness um, over your child's future, right? Um, that That's a, that's a mind blowing feeling to have. Um, and at the same time, carrying this knowledge that the world and legally, things like you know, the Individual Disabilities Education Act in the United States, right, in particular, are expecting you to advocate for your kid, are telling you it is your right and your duty. And yet when you go to do that, you're being shut down in every possible way. I mean, what else, what what else are you left with other than feelings of impotence, right? And feelings of brokenness and you know, but and loss, right? But but what I think is so amazing about these women is how they use the home as a way to rebuild and push against all of that, right? Um, I want to be really clear that this book is not a pity party. This book is not a space where we can come in, gawk at these women's lives and say, oh my, that's so sad for them. That is not what this book is um, in any way, shape or form. Um, and I think about it in the way that like, how do I want my mother seen in the world? How do I want to be seen as a mother in the world? Which is, I wanna be seen again as a whole person rather than the sum of my struggles or the sum of my successes. Um, You know, So yes, while these women share their struggles and I share them in the book, it's to give context to how amazing they actually are. It's to allow people to understand the weight that is being carried, and yet the miles that are being navigated and walked, right, and covered. And like, it's, it's about how much better we could be as a school system, as a society, if we actually worked as partners rather than as service providers, right? And, and that's really important for me, that it's about highlighting what we're missing out on, Right, it's about highlighting the strength, the capacity, the knowledge, the awareness um, that happens, not in spite of, right? But just because it happens, just because these women decided that that is what they needed and wanted to do for their children. And the fact that I got 10 mothers to share similar stories across the board indicates that this isn't a fluke, right? And these are 10 mothers in one community. Right. So just imagine how many more there are out there who are doing this work quietly. Right. And unnoticed. And in some cases that that work is actively being rejected. Um, I remember when I was uh, guest lecturing uh, in Kate Seltzer's class at City College a few years ago and a student had said, had asked a question about what do you do about the parents that are really difficult, you know, the ones that deny that their kid has a disability like what do we do about that. And, you know, Kate and I kind of looked at each other and, and we ended up having this beautiful conversation about how would you feel if someone was constantly telling you that something was wrong with your child, how would you feel if every time you tried to advocate for your child someone was telling you that you were doing it wrong or someone was telling you that you were you know like eventually you would get angry eventually you would explode right because this is years of ignoring of maligning right like we need to recognize again how it is that as schools as schooling communities we are creating these behaviors rather than just blaming them on parents as if they come out of thin air.
0: Right. And how we're creating the divide and how we're creating the, how we're taking, how we're, we're breaking the bridges to to form connections. Right? And,
1: yeah, we're sustaining the power structures, right? And in some cases magnifying them. Right. I feel
0: like there are so much, there's so many parallels to uh, the way that language specialists try to help the school see uh, multilinguals or language learners from an asset-based lens mm-hmm. to the parallel that you're talking about, the way we should see multilinguals as um, full of assets is the same way we need to see their parents, their mothers, their fathers, their caregivers as uh, full of assets. Right? All yeah, those resources.
1: And, and that we need to see children with disabilities as that as well. Um, I think one thing that ends up happening in, in in the language community, right, language education community, is that we try so hard to sustain or to highlight the value of our work that sometimes we discount right the cultural need of our work right it's not just about economic gains um you know there's a chapter in the book called um something along the lines of like bilingualism for the future and you know the ambiguity of bilingualism in the present and we need to understand that like, we can't just think about bilingualism in the future or talk about it in economic terms, yes. right? Or yes. even in terms of like, well, look, you'll travel the world, right? Like that's all neo-capital, you know, uh, neo-capitalism, right? It's, that's really what it is and neoliberalism. Um, what we need to be thinking about is what are the goals for this child? not just academic goals, but the social goals, right? Like I would ask these mothers, you know, what are you hoping for the future? And they would say, you know, I hope they get married, that they have a family, that they have a job. You know, there were concerns about independence that they're well cared for. Um, And then I'd say, well, do you want them to be bilingual or not? And they're like, well, yes, it would be important for a job because that's the narrative we've been selling, right? But yet, you know, children like Dan, right, Um, Patty's son, he was communicating with siblings in another country, you know, Patty had had two children previously to coming to the US. So she had two grown children in Mexico who were Spanish dominant, and raising two children here in the US who were English dominant, and somehow they needed to be able to have a relationship, right. So that's the ambiguity that I'm talking about when I talk about bilingualism in the present, is that we somehow don't think it's worth it for kids, including kids with disabilities, to be bilingual now, right? Because we're always just thinking about the contributions that bilingualism and multilingualism can do to the economy, right? And, you know, without relationships, again, there is no economic growth. There is, you know, there is no language justice if we're not thinking about it along the lines of interpersonal relationships rather than just the commodifiable relationships. Um, so so that's, you know, so that's what I'm thinking about when we think about how how are we shaping these systems, right? To influence not just what we're doing, but how people think about language, how people think about bilingualism and multilingualism.
0: It's not just about the economic outcome of education, it's about the relationship that we are sustaining with the kids and their families and their cultures.
1: Yeah, and if we're saying that a kid doesn't need to be bilingual now because the most important thing is for them to speak, for example, right? To have oral speech. Okay, so they have oral speech only in English, but at home, the parents are speaking only in Spanish. What what are we saying about that child's environment and situation? Either we're gonna create a lot of behavioral issues because there's gonna be breakdowns in communication, or we're going to create mental health issues because the student's gonna feel isolated, right? And excluded from their families. Or, right, like the possibilities are endless as to the ways that we can traumatize kids. So I think we also need to be careful that we don't just talk about, you know, enabled or typically developing multilingual kids when we're talking about access to bilingualism and multilingualism, that we talk about everybody who wants to be bilingual or multilingual should be given and granted the opportunity to do so. And that it shouldn't be, you know, based on, are they going to get the seal of bilingualism, right? Or, you know, some kind of other accolade. It's, Let's talk to families. How are they feeling about their ability to be together, right? to talk, to engage, to communicate, um, about their ability to you know, be able to move from country to country or state to state or community to community? Like, There's so much more that language and multilingualism allows for than just economic gain.
0: I wrote down uh, the phrase you said, how parents use the home to transform the lives of kids. And you were so lucky to go into ten homes, and so can you talk about
1: what did we? What did you learn from that? Um, I learned that uh, parents are, well, mothers in particular, um, really, really look at relationships as a way to motivate their kids um, to learn languages, and and I think that that's really important. So mothers would enroll their kids in Sunday school, um, and they would do it in Spanish. Um, Mothers would hire Spanish speaking tutors, right? To help their kids with their homework. Um, They had stickers and labels of things all over the home um, indicating what the item was called in both uh, English and Spanish. Um, I saw them using things like um, YouTube, right? To First, for the mothers to first preview whatever it was that their kids were working on in their home language and then be able to talk about it with their kids in Spanish. I saw them using Google Translate um, to translate homework from English to Spanish and then back to uh, English again. Um, Yeah, I I saw a lot. I saw, but also I saw things that were surprising to me and I think that highlight my own biases, right? You know, Anna, during one of the visits that I came, she was building papier-mâché Easter baskets with the kids, right, which I wouldn't have thought about. Um, And I think that that's a bias that I have, right, because here's this uneducated, low-income woman, what would she know about papier-mâché or about trying to do crafts with her kids, right? But like, of course, she's doing crafts with her kids. What else is she going to do on a Saturday? Um, I Like, it's it's what parents do. I saw them, you know, teaching them life skills, you know, how to bathe yourself, how to, you know, clean up after yourself, how to help make dinner, how to grocery shop, how to take care of pets. Um, I, I mean, I just saw so much um, that I just felt we need to, we need to revisit home visits, I think is is what i'm I'm coming to. We need to, consider you know the space that kids live in and and I'm not saying it has to be in the home but you know we have all these studies that kids should study the communities that they live in but like teachers should study the communities that they're working in Um, you know they should actually try to become really entrenched members of their community so that they understand what's happening there so that they understand when a rent crisis is you know coming up because they'll be able to talk about that with their kids and recognize that that's going to be an issue for families. Um, And I know that this may sound like me asking teachers to do everything and take on the world, but what I'm actually asking for is for teachers to invest in the community so that the community can invest in them, right? So that we can feel like it's a semiotic relationship, right? Or a symbiotic relationship rather than a one-sided relationship. And I think oftentimes... We need to recognize that if we teach in communities that are not our own you know i i think about it for new york for example if i ride the train into bushwick to go to work and then i leave on the train out of bushwick to go back to my home and my family my community and the only time i go in and out of this neighborhood is when i'm going to work that's not really going to communicate to the people that i'm working with that i'm invested in this community that i'm invested in these children holistically, um, and that they're welcome in that space because they know I'll understand them and their struggles. So I think if we want to be able to build genuine and authentic partnerships, then we have to do the work first because we've been the ones who've been closing the doors for the longest. So can we talk about
0: uh, how can schools partner with with, um, Latinx mothers?
1: Um, I think we need to recognize that we cannot ask parents to do things during school hours yes. and expect there to be a hundred percent involvement and engagement. It's just not possible. You know, I'm a parent myself. I can't do the things and also have my job and do the work that I'm doing. It, it's not possible. Um, you know, and there's a lot of negotiations that happen in my household. You have two people with terminal degrees, two people with high incomes, right. Where compared to the world. Um, and yet, We struggle, right, with when do we show up to school and when do we not show up to school. Um, We often choose not to do the school things so that we can do the home things because then it's a family dynamic, right? Um, But we are never questioned on those choices, and I think that that's a very important distinction. Um, We're not questioned on those choices because of our language privilege, because our linguistic privilege, because of our economic privilege, because of our educational privileges, right? we can legitimize our choices when pushed back or asked about them um, in ways that you know these mothers may not have the language or tools to do so right so i think so that's that's a first it's we need to offer the same grace to these mothers that we offer other mothers and other families um that's that's what number one um, number two, I think we need to have more family-centered events rather than just child-focused events. When we mm-hmm. think about the things that we want parents to come to, it's parent-teacher conferences, right? Or IEP meetings. These are usually two events when parents are not necessarily getting good news, particularly parents of students with disabilities or English language learners, right? So now I have to go find childcare for you to tell me that my kid's not doing well in school, right? which is gonna create like a whole nother sense of tension in me, which is gonna spill over into tension and pressure into my child, right? When at the same time we're telling parents, look, your child has an an educational limitation or something that's getting in the way from their learning, but we're gonna hold them to the same standards as everybody else, right? Like we just need to acknowledge like how confusing that is. So we need to have opportunities where families can just be right, where it's just fun to be around each other, where we're building experiences together as a school community, and then we can have conversations about how do we work together to support this child, right? What what goals do you have? Not only what goals have we as a school identified? Um, so that, though, that I think is the second thing. Um, and I think third is just, Having, so I really love surveys and they're great. Um, You know, we do these getting to know you activities at the beginning of the school year. Um, My kids are at a cooperative school and we're asked, how do you wanna be involved in the school community? Right, and there's a list of options. Um, And I think having things like that would also be helpful, right? Because if parents and mothers in particular knew that there's a variety of ways that they can be involved, they would be. I think about how we've really poo-pooed as a, as a, as a field engagements on, um, you know, like holidays, right. And like cooking and like all those things when like, But those are opportunities when moms really feel like they can be engaged, right? Like, yes, let me bring you food. Let me feed you. Let me nurture you and my child. Like, let me contribute to this community space. That's really beautiful, right? What if instead of just bringing a dish, we ask parents every week, can one parent bring in a dish and send us a recording or something of how that dish was made, right? Or why it's important to their community. Then not only does the mother get to be involved, right? She also gets to know what her kid is learning at school, right? Then they also get a topic of conversation between the child and the parent to be able to talk about school, right? It's a starting point. You know, my kids have jobs at school. So the thing I ask them every day, if I ask them, how was school? Good, fine. What was your job? Oh, I was attendance helper that turns into a totally different conversation right so if we gave parents and a look in right in those ways that would be really helpful um you know if parents can't come for day-to-day what if we just recorded snippets of the class right we have instagram we have all you know facebook all of these feeds that we can make private and just classroom exclusive And parents could get snapshots of what the kids are learning and doing and, you know, day to day, rather than waiting till the last minute and then they can contribute. Um, You know, I was able to see, even though we're in a pandemic, I was able to see that uh, my son's class is studying birds. So I was able to email a teacher and say, hey, we have chickens in our yard, you should come and look at them. Right. So I think The biggest thing that needs to happen is we need to eliminate this divide between school and home. Um, I think some of it really has happened as part of the pandemic. Um, You know, I think COVID and remote school has highlighted so many opportunities that parents are getting to see what their children are actually learning, how they're being regarded. And, you know, some of these families have gripes and we need to hear them. Um, because they're valid and they're accurate. I have a friend, Okaikor, who wrote a New York Times, who was featured in a New York Times article around how remote schooling was really highlighting racist ideologies in schools, right? And so we know that parents of color are seeing this happen. We need to see this as an opportunity to talk about how can we be better together? How can we move forward? this summer, I interviewed some moms as part of a look at what has remote schooling been like for, you know, Spanish dominant Latinx mothers of students with disabilities. And a lot of them just felt like just commented about how it was the first time they had actually seen their kids receive services. Right. Actually seen it happen because usually they just get a report about what happens and then they move on. Right. That's important. That's important. We, you know, what if an ESL teacher just took clips of work that they're doing, sends that to the parents, says, hey, here's what we're doing instead of just report cards and videos. So I think it's just, we need better communication. Right. Um, and some of it has to go beyond the traditional means of communication or the traditional opportunities for communication like parent-teacher conferences or emails or grades.
0: Right.
1: Because that's, have- not, that's not a universal language
0: you're saying let's create a welcoming space where mothers and fathers and parents, uh, guardians feel like they are safe to be part of a school community. When they feel safe, they'll be able to see what their kids are doing. They'll be able to continue that at home, but also they're able to contribute
1: things they're doing at home to the school because they're in the school more. Exactly. And I I just want to say really quickly, because you, you were really inclusive and in when you were just talking about mothers, parents and guardians, and um, I was asked recently why I use Latinx if they're all mothers. And I think, you know, which I mentioned in the book, mothering is not gendered, yes. mothering, right? The care, the act of caring for, of nurturing, uh, you know, of watching, of investing, of sacrificing, that is not exclusive to women. Um, so it's Latinx because I didn't ask, you know, the participants to identify themselves, you know, what are your preferred pronouns or any of those things. Um, and I'm not so concerned with the gender as I am with the actual practice of mothering, of caring for, so thank you for that.
0: So uh, you, I'm getting chills. This is, because we're so close to mother's Day, it was it happened like two a week ago and you're writing and you've written a book about mothers and you you don't know this but i feel like you're speaking to uh i feel like this is like a a therapy session for me right because i have internalized the narrative around my mother she was an immigrant right she is an immigrant now she's an american citizen but she didn't know the language so she couldn't really show up Right? and I was she wasn't able to help me with the homework in the beginning of the early years, and so the parents would just say, yeah, she's says a single mother working three jobs, right, but now you're helping me see that that's a wrong narrative, and that's not the only narrative, and that's a wrong perspective of how we see our parents and our families, and so I really appreciate, I know that you're talking about Latinx uh, mothers, but really I think you're, if you could expand this out, you're really talking to, um, Families from marginalized communities, right? just like my like This can be connected to Asian Americans who are or who are new to uh, Asians who are new to America, who are just coming to America for the first time, and then they feel the same thing. And so, teachers who are who are listening to this podcast, who are in a predominant, let's say, um, let's say Arabic community or an Asian community they can see this and say, you know what, there's a connection here between my community too. I, we probably have to see our parents, our families, our guardians in a different way. And that's what I think you're doing for us.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'm actually, as we're talking, I'm, the book uh, is officially in print today, which is really exciting. Um, But I was looking for one of the files that I have because what you're saying is absolutely true. book, which is why the book is dedicated to all immigrant mothers. Um, it's not just dedicated to Latinx mothers. And I, and I hope that when people pick this up, they see that it's not just about bilingualism and disability in the lives of Latino women. It's about bilingualism and disability in U.S. culture and in U.S. school systems. Um, and that the reason why it's important to highlight the Latinx mothers component is because that is a population in a community from whom we haven't really heard from and it's not for lack of trying or for lack of having things to say it's because we haven't been listening and that's true for so many marginalized mothers so many immigrant communities um, So yeah, I really, really appreciate you saying that. You know, it had to be about Latinx women because that's where that's my positionality. That's who I am. That's that's who I can talk to and speak with. And to be you know really clear, there are also differences between me and these women. So I'm not pretending like our life experiences are exactly the same. But it made a huge difference in how I saw my mother. Um, I. I was expecting the women's narratives to be really negative and to be another contribution to the empty vessel. Um, And I think it just allowed me to understand that the work that was being done right, was being done for me. It wasn't being done against me and that I myself as a learner had internalized that my mother was a failure because the school had decided that she was a failure because she wasn't participating in the ways that they wanted her to.
0: Oh, this is so great. I think I hope teachers really get that, that this is not just about Latinx mothers. It's, it's really about uh, families from immigrant backgrounds right, or marginalized communities. So is there anything else that we didn't get to
1: cover in this hour? I just don't want teachers to walk away from this feeling like they're being asked to do more. I think what I'm asking is for them to do differently. Mm.
0: And to see differently.
1: Yeah, and to move differently and to, you know, if we we're thinking so much about culturally sustaining and culturally relevant practices when we're thinking about our learners, but we're not quite there yet when we're thinking about their families.
0: Oh, that was that was like the most beautiful line ever. There are so many beautiful lines in this podcast, in this conversation. So let's end this way with traffic light teaching. from this book, What is your red light that you would ask listeners to stop doing in terms of um, Latinx mothers with children with disabilities? Um, uh, yellow light would be something that we can, what can we do to slow down um, our interaction? with Latinx mothers? And then the green light would be, what can we do it more often?
1: Okay. Um, So red light is um, stop believing that because of your training, you know, more than parents Yes. Um, or that you're the expert in the room. Uh, They are experts too. Uh, We're just, you know, in these conversations we need multiple experts and different types of expertise. Um, And they're experts in their children. We're experts in pedagogy and in practice and theory, but they're experts in their children. And the two are necessary in order for us to really move forward. Um, Something yellow. Uh, Something yellow is when we're developing goals for students, I would ask us to stop and think about, and not only think about what goals could the family have for this child, but ask, what goals do you have and explicitly ask what linguistic goals do you have for your child Mm -hmm. and something green that i think we could do more of is i think we can communicate more i think we can share more of what's happening in our classrooms um and i know that that's scary because we can be judged and i know that you know there's ways that People can manipulate what we do, but if we walk into things authentically and believing them and offering ourselves grace and also trusting that the families we're working with want the same things we want, um, I think we're going to be in a really good place. So if we enter into conversations from a place of we are here to work together rather than I'm here, you know, then seeing ourselves as adversaries, that's something we can continue to do more of. Well,
0: Dr. Maria Joy-Pena, you again have just uh, shared, I, I felt like you again tapped from a source and then you let it flow. You are going, you are already, I feel like um, the new, like Dr. Uh, Ophelia Sierra said uh, when she talked about you, she, you said like a young scholar, like a new scholar, and there are going to be so many uh, new teachers looking up to you because you're really helping us see in a different way, and so thank you for being a, a vanguard for a new generation of teachers and sharing us, sharing with us how to be inclusive and responsive. Thank you again.
1: Thank you. Oh, thank you so much for offering me the opportunity to highlight my messy journey, um, you know, and to continue to be a step, you know, in in the work. I these conversations are not just important for your listeners they're important for me because they help me anchor myself in this social justice work right it it helps me make sure that I am living up to the promises that I made so thank you
0: I think journey the uh, journeys that are messier the ones we remember more
1: and the ones we're supposed to learn from so hopefully (laughs) (laughs) thank you so much
0: thank you Before we recap this episode, I have a favor and an invitation. My favor is to ask you to please review this podcast if you found it valuable so that teachers like you become inspired and informed in their advocacy work. My invitation is for you to enroll in my scaffolding learning or teacher collaboration courses. I've taken the principles that I've learned from experts in the field I've applied them to my classes. I kept the things at work and I'm sharing all of them in these courses. I hope you consider enrolling. Now onto our recap. The thing that resonated with me in this podcast is the parallel between how we see language learners for their assets must also translate to seeing the assets of their families. In their previous podcast with Dr. Spera Fenner and Dr. Snyder, they said that an assets-based perspective recognizes that parents of MLs are involved in their children's education and support their children in ways that might not be so obvious to many educators who do not have the knowledge of individual ML family routines and beliefs. Dr. Maria Choi-Pena, helped us pause long enough for us to see all the ways that families are investing in their children. Just because parents and guardians are not showing up to parent-teacher conferences, this doesn't mean that they don't care about their children's success. The three suggestions to see differently are, give space when they might not be involved at school. And two, instead of creating student-centered events, we need to create family-centered events where families can participate with their children. In this space, we will see their assets more clearly. And three, give parents a look into the classroom so that immigrant families can integrate when students are learning at school with the things that families are doing at home. Remember, our job is to see our immigrant parents as whole, just like the way they see their children as whole as well. In the next episode, Alex Severin-Vent will join us to talk about her book called Equity-Centered Trauma-Informed Education. Thank you for listening. I'll see you soon. Be safe and be rooted in peace. It's your turn to play Traffic Light Teaching Tweeted me either your red, yellow, or green light from this particular episode.